0: good morning, 1130. It's good to see you guys Uh, after taking a short break from teaching. uh, Before I begin my message, I wanted to thank our associate pastor, John Pyle, for the excellent job he did leading us in our Made for More series. Yeah, thanks, John, wherever you are. (laughs) You know, a part of our vision here at City Church is to raise up the next generation of leaders and preachers and worship leaders and kid city leaders and student leaders. And so John is a part of that. Uh, you know, we've been, I've been able to see him go through seminary and get his master's degree in theology. And so just, it's just exciting to see the next generation rising up among us. Now for the next seven weeks, I invite you to join me on a journey where we're going to explore and unpack why we believe what we believe about Jesus. You see, here at City Church, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. We believe Jesus can forgive your sins. We believe Jesus can give people an eternal life ultimately and an abundant life here and now. That's what we believe. But why do we believe what we believe? That's what this series is all about. And so I want to begin by asking you a question. What do you believe about Jesus? And why do you believe what you believe about Jesus? I think your answers to those two questions is very important, especially in these days. You see, I don't know if you know this, but all throughout our culture, many people are walking away from Christianity. In fact, in Europe, Europe has been post-Christian for decades, and the United States is rapidly becoming post-Christian. And I think many people are walking away from Christianity because they don't know why they believe Whatever it is, they do believe about Jesus, and I think that's concerning. Now, Frank Turek is a former Navy pilot who became a college professor, a teacher at George Washington University, and he is also a defender of the Christian faith. And he wrote an interesting book entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And so if if you're sort of a skeptic at heart, this would be a great book for you to consider as you're exploring our faith. Well, anyway, Frank Turk travels around the country debating new atheists, uh, defending the faith. He does this on college campuses and in public event centers, uh, defending our faith. And he made this very interesting observation. He wrote, the reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. The reason so many college students and millennials and other adults are talked out of Christianity is because so many of them were never talked into Christianity to begin with. And so I just want you to know in this series, I'm going to try to talk you into Christianity. If you don't believe in Jesus, uh, but you're exploring our faith, I just want you to know you're welcome here. This is a safe community of grace. We understand that a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus but want to explore what people who believe in him believe, they come to places like churches, and our church just welcomes you, and you don't have to believe what we believe to be here. But do understand, I am going to try to talk you into Christianity. <laughs> and if you would say, Pastor, I, I'm one of those people who walked away from Christianity. Well, then I'm, I'm going to attempt to talk you back into Christianity And I'm going to do so by giving you some compelling reasons to believe in Jesus. And if you say, you know, Pastor, I do believe in Jesus, then my purpose for this series is to give you a sense of clarity about why you believe what you believe about Jesus so you can share what you believe about Jesus with others in a credible way. Now, I want to begin by making something clear. God never asks us, to believe anything just because. God never asks us to just believe anything. He always gives us a reason to believe, and I think that's important. You see, Christianity isn't just some vague hope built upon traditions that have been passed on from generation to generation that we hope is true. Maybe one day we'll see if it is true. You know, a a kind of tradition that you just got to believe because you just got to believe. Have you ever heard people say things like that? Well, you just got to believe. Or maybe if you're from the South, it was something like this. Well, you just got to believe, brother. Or you just got to have faith, sister. You ever heard stuff like that? Anybody ever said that to you? I hate that kind of stuff. I hate when people say, well, you just got to believe. No, you don't. In fact, I want you to know, I want you to hear right, right from me. Anybody who told you, well, you just got to believe, they were wrong. You don't just got to believe. The first believers didn't believe just because they had to believe. They believed for reasons. And we're going to unpack those reasons in this series. God never asked anyone to take anything by faith without a reason. Because I, So I want to make, make it clear, the Christian faith... Is always based on something or someone. Which means there's a reason to believe it. And the historic Christian faith that I'm going to unpack over these next seven weeks. Will look at the reasons to believe based on what is seen. Based on credible evidence. The credible evidence of eyewitnesses. Or what I'm calling in this series bystanders. Who saw something and believed because of what they saw. You see for them. Seeing is believing. And what they recorded, we're going to look at the, the, what, what the, the eyewitness evidence of bystanders. And, and here's what I want to suggest to you, if, if you'll follow along with me on this journey. We make decisions about what we believe happened even when we didn't see it based on the credible evidence of eyewitnesses. We, we do this all the time. Like our entire judicial system is based upon that premise that you could take 12 ordinary people who did not see something happen, have them hear the credible evidence of eyewitnesses and people who did see something happen, and ask them to make a decision based on the credible evidence of eyewitnesses or bystanders. So let me show you how I know this. So back, uh, back when I attended uh, UTSA uh, uh, as a college student, do I got any roadrunners out there? You know what this is. Yeah. Woo. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. Okay, and I was, I was an English major, philosophy minor. I thought I was super smart. Anyway, while I was in college, I got called to jury duty. And while I got called to jury duty, I actually got onto a trial. It was a murder, attempted murder trial. And over the course of weeks, we were presented evidence, credible evidence. And we were asked, as jurors, to make a decision based on the evidence. So this is what was presented to us. Prosecutors say that the accused broke into a couple's house who purchased gold coins and then melted them down and made jewelry out of them. Prosecutors say that the accused broke into their house, took a hammer, and brutally attacked both uh, cup, the, the couple and left them for dead. By the time the police caught him, they found gold coins, like the coins at the house. They found gold jewelry, the kind of jewelry this couple made. They found the hammer. He had the hammer on him, and it had their blood on it. And he had their blood on his clothing. To top it all off, the wife ended up surviving the attack and identified him and said, he's the one who hit me and killed my husband. And after one week of testimony... The judge asked us, the jurors, to make a decision. Even though none of us had seen what had happened, he asked us to make a decision based on the eyewitness evidence of others who did. And that's what I'm gonna ask you to do as well. You may not have seen what Jesus did and what he's and you may not have heard what he, what he said, but others did. And I'm gonna present to you credible evidence regarding what Jesus did. And I am going to ask you to make a decision based on the evidence that I'm going to present over the next seven weeks. We're going to look at the eyewitness account of a bystander. This bystander's name is John. And John was one of the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus, the inner circle with Jesus. And if you ask John, who, who was a believer and he was a leader in Jesus' movement, the movement he called the church, if you ask John, John, why do you believe? He wouldn't have said, well, just because... John would have told you, I believe because of what I saw. For me, believing is, a seeing is believing. And and we know that as John got older, we believe he was the, the disciple that lived the longest. He ended up in prison on an island because of his faith in Jesus. He realized, I need to leave a record of my eyewitness account of what I saw that convinced me to believe that Jesus is the Son of God so I can leave it for others to consider and believe that Jesus is the Son of God too. And so, his eyewitness account that he recorded has been passed down to us uh, throughout the, uh, the Christian history in a document we call the Gospel of John, and the word gospel simply means good news. So it's the good news according to John, and John assumed, he expected that this good news that he recorded would bring good news to all people throughout all human history. Because he was convinced, if I can show people this credible evidence of what I saw, they'll believe in him too. And here's how we know that's what he intended. You see, John's is the one gospel account where he tells us, here's why I wrote this. Uh, It's recorded in John chapter 20, verse 30, where John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs. And so that that word's going to be a key word in this study. He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, did you notice John, John didn't say, hey, I want you to believe just because, brother. He said, no, here's the credible evidence that I saw, and I'm asking you to believe because of what I saw. And the evidence that John's going to unfold for us during these uh, seven weeks is uh, are miraculous signs that he recorded, where he recorded what happened. Signs, okay? So we all know what signs are, right? Signs point things out to us. I mean, we see signs all, all the time. So like, like here's, a, here's a sign that you might see when you're driving around. What is that? Stop sign. And so that sign uh, points out something. It says, hey, right here, you, sh- you need to stop. Unless you're in Los Angeles... I just visited my daughter in Los Angeles and they don't see that sign the same way we do in Texas. For them, it's like a slow down and then punch it sign. Lakers. (sighs) Okay, got distracted here. Oh, okay. Uh, Another sign that we see. What does that sign point out? Deer crossing, right. It means you need to watch out. Some some deer might be crossing here. So signs uh, try to get our attention. Signs point out something. And what John is going to unfold in his account of Jesus' life is seven signs that he believes points out who Jesus is. They point to his identity, that he is the son of God. And his desire is that we would see these signs, we would see his account of these signs, and that we would believe too. Because for John, seeing is believing. And sometimes when, when you hear the phrase, seeing is believing, you think that's the statement of a skeptic. It's not. That's why John believed, and he was one of the 12. I think it's okay to say, I want to see, to believe. All right, you ready to look at the first sign? Okay, so let me set up the first sign. It's really quirky. A lot of people don't know this. The first miracle Jesus ever did is really quirky, especially for a devout religious leader. Uh, You'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute. Okay, let's begin. John 2, verse 1. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Okay, so do you have the scene, there's a wedding. And so the first miracle, the first miraculous sign happened at a wedding. And and I think it's important to notice all of the details you see there. First of all, he said, on the third day... So-and-so happened. You see, yeah, on the third day, a wedding took place. What does that mean? Well, if you go back and look at the previous chapter, uh, Jesus had just invited a young man named Nathaniel to become one of his 12 disciples, and Nathaniel lived in Cana, and so that's why Jesus was in the area of Cana, and Cana is located way north of Jerusalem where Jesus got in so much trouble with religious leaders, it was really close to his hometown, and so here's why all of those details are so important because, you know, can we just be honest? Most of us, when we read through the, the accounts of, of the Gospels like this, we skip over that part, you know, where they were and when it was. But you have to understand th- these details are significant because it's the kind of details a person writing an eyewitness account would include. Okay, I'm going to tell you about something that happened. This is where it happened, this is when it happened. And you have to remember, the people that John wrote to, they could go check it out. If you want to go check it out, this is where it happened, this is when it happened. And this is so important, because a lot of the new atheists make the argument that all of the stories about Jesus are mythological accounts. And you see, I think it's important that John didn't write, a long time ago, in a land far, far away, blah, blah, blah. Uh Uh-uh. He said, here's where this happened, here's when it happened, and you can go check it out. You see, the historical nature of the gospel accounts is a reason to believe. In fact, it was so compelling, it's one of the reasons a a very famous atheist became a believer. His name is C.S. Lewis. You may know him as an author and as an Oxford University professor, but he also was an atheist who became a believer, partly because of the historical nature of the gospel accounts. And, And the reason it was significant for him is because he was an expert in mythology. That's what his field was. And he said, you know, I know what myths sound like, and the gospel accounts don't sound like myths. They sound like the readers are writing a historical account, and it's one of the reasons C.S. Lewis became a believer. Okay, anyway, back to the sign. Uh, Verse three, okay, so you got, they're at a wedding, right? The scene's at a wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, hey, they have no more wine, boy. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. <laughs> okay, first of all, can we just all acknowledge this wasn't a Baptist wedding? <laughs> no, this was a fun wedding, okay, and they had wine. <clears throat> and... Uh, and, and you know you, you might be thinking, I mean, what kind of creepy host hosts a wedding and then runs out of wine before it's over? We have to remember, uh, uh, weddings in Jesus' day weren't like afternoon events that you finish at the night. People would come for days and days, sometimes as long as a week. And so the hosts were expected to provide all of the food and all of the drink for all of the guests that came and stayed for that, all that time. And it's apparent by this account that Jesus' mother, Mary, was one of the people hosting this uh, wedding. And so she felt personally responsible to take care of the wine fiasco. And so she did what a normal mom would do. She asked her eldest son to help with this problem. Now, when you see Jesus' response, I mean, it looks a little bit offensive, doesn't it? I mean, guys, how many of you would get away with calling your mother woman? (laughs) Let me just say, don't do that. And don't quote Jesus on that. Well, I'm just calling you a woman like Jesus called his mother. <laughs> hmm, I think that's bad. I think it's a, a mis, a mis, like a mistranslation. I think a better way, if, if you understand their culture, this, a better way to translate it would be something like my lady. It was a formal term that an adult child would use to speak to his uh, mother in a public setting. I mean, you don't call her mom anymore. And so it was something more for, formal than that. Okay. Anyway, and, and Jesus said, My lady, why do you involve me in this? My hour has not yet come. So what was that all about? This is so important. It's very evident by what Jesus said. He had not performed any miracles yet. Nobody else knew who he was except his mother. (laughs) And she wanted him to out himself, so to speak. To out his identity by maybe, she wasn't sure what he would do. And Jesus was saying, "Mm, this is not the way I planned it. I didn't plan to do my first miracle at a wedding. And when Jesus said, my hour hasn't come, it's like he was saying, Mom, I came to be the Savior of the world, not the Savior of a wedding. (laughs) But Jesus did it anyway. Why did he do it, even though he didn't plan it? Because his mom asked. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so funny, if if you can just picture the scene... You know, Mary's asking her son to do something about the, the wine problem. Jesus says, oh, not now, not now. And she just ignores him. and goes, hey, you guys do whatever he says. <laughs> Typical mom stuff. And it's like you can picture Jesus standing there going, thanks, mom. <laughs> now, up to this point, if you're reading this account, you might be going, okay, John, what, why are you telling me about a wedding that ran out of wine? I mean, big deal. Well, now we get to the point in the story where you see the significance of this first miraculous sign. Uh, You ready? This is John 2, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and that, that detail is very important, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine. You know, the Boone Strawberry Hill stuff. (laughs) After the guests... Have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Now, can I just first say, how cool is it that Jesus' first miracle ever was turning water into the best wine ever at a party? (laughs) Now, I, I I say that because a lot of people like to depict Jesus as this very stoic, religious recluse. He was not. He was a person who loved to be around people to celebrate life and enjoy life with family and friends and neighbors. And I think that's significant. But what was the significance then? Why did, what was the significance of this miracle? Okay, and this is where those ceremonial uh, jars that I told you to pay attention to come in. You see, those jars were used in the Jewish religion and their faith. They represent the whole Jewish system. Because this was a part of it. And uh, the Jews would take water from those jars and they would ceremonially, ceremonially wash their, their arms and their hands before they would eat. And they did it for a religious re- reason because the law of Moses told them to. But we now know they did it because they got germs off them too. So it had sort of a side benefit. But they didn't know that. And, and these the ceremonial jars just represented an, an old system that was coming to an end. The Jewish system, the Jewish religion, and the traditions, and the laws related to it that were coming to an end. You see, Jesus came to replace what was with something better. It's not that the the old was bad. It's just he's going to replace it with something better. And it was pictured by wine. And I'll explain that in a minute. I like the way that uh, great British uh, commentator, his name is F.F. Bruce Scholar of the New Testament, this is how he described the significance of this first miraculous sign, the first miracle Jesus ever did. He writes, the water they poured into these empty vessels that provided for purification as laid down by the Jewish law and customs stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony, which Christ would replace with something better. You see, when when God first established his covenant, his his commitment to the Jewish people through Moses, and he did make that commitment, he always intended that it would be a temporary covenant, that one day he would replace that covenant with something new. And the the core uh, practice within that covenant system, you you may remember, was the sacrificial system. So you had to bring animals to pay, pay for your own sins. Well, Jesus came to bring something new And he established what he called the new covenant. On the night before he was arrested, he picked up a glass of wine, and this is what he said. This is the new covenant in my blood. What once washed away whatever was in your life with water is now going to be through my blood. And wine reminds us of his sacrifice that washes away our sins. And what he was saying is, I'm bringing something new. And this something new is better. There was nothing wrong with the old system. God created it. But I'm bringing something new. It's better. And it's me. And I want you to notice. <clears throat> I want you to notice how his disciples responded to what they saw. This is John 2.11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs of through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So when John writes that Jesus revealed his glory, what that, that's a fancy way of saying Jesus revealed for the first time to others who he is. This is who I am. Through this miraculous sign, he said, he's saying, I am God in the flesh. I can do the supernat- supernatural. I can turn water into the best of wine. And his disciples saw, and they believed. Seeing is believing. And I'm asking you to believe too. I'm asking you to consider the credible evidence by an eyewitness, a bystander. When he saw this miracle, John believed Jesus was the Son of God and gave the rest of his life to leading his movement. I'm asking you to do the same. So how do you respond? How do you respond to these miraculous signs? So I I did a a word study as I was preparing for this message, and I looked through John's whole account of Jesus' life, and I looked up every time he used the word faith or belief. It's the same word in Greek, one's a noun, one's a verb. And I found he used it 89 times in this little account of Jesus' life. I think John wants us to get this faith stuff, this believing stuff. I think he wants us to see these signs that he saw in person and to believe that Jesus is the son of God. I think he wants you to believe that he is your savior. He wants you to believe that Jesus can forgive your sins, that Jesus can give you eternal life ultimately and an abundant life here and now. I'm asking you to look at the evidence and to make a decision. So let's get back to my trial. Let's get back to my jury trial because that's the fun part. So after a week of testimony, let me re- recount the evidence. They found gold coins like the gold coins uh, found at the couple's house. They found gold jewelry just like the jewelry the couple made. They found the hammer with the couple's blood on it. They, they found their blood on his clothing that he still had on him. And uh, the, the wife, the uh, wife, survived the attack and identified him and said, I'm an eyewitness, that's the person who did it. And so when they sent us back into the, to the room to make the decision, you know, I was one of 12, I was like, well, this is a no-brainer, this won't take long. And so anyway, we, we go into the room and if you, if you ever served on a jury, the first time you write it out and you, and you fold it so nobody has to say out loud, and we pass it around and the first vote came up, eight guilty, four not guilty. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I thought, what in the world? And, and, and here's the deal. Those of you who've been on a jury know that there's no more evidence to present. The lawyers aren't going to come in and make new, new, uh, present new evidence. The judge can't come in and really present anything new. It's just 12 ordinary people in a room with a written record of eyewitness Testimony. And with the call to make the same decision together. And so for hours and hours, we poured back through this record of eyewitness testimony. Each one of us trying to explain why we believe what we believe about what happened. And you know what I learned in that that, uh, deliberation? I, I learned something very important. The four people who voted not guilty did not have a problem with credible evidence. They had a problem with making a decision like that one. They just couldn't bring themselves to declare anyone guilty. And for them, it was a problem. And let me tell you why I think that's so important to our conversation. I think there are some people who have what I call a decision paralysis. It's not that they can't make any decision about anything... It's that they can't make some decisions about some things. And I think some people have a decision paralysis relating to Jesus. And it gets into our lives in different ways. Some people have a decision paralysis about Jesus because you grew up in a Christian home and Christianity was shoved down your throat and you have a bad taste in your mouth. It's hard for you to make any decision about Jesus. Some of you maybe were mistreated Or abused by someone within the church, maybe even by a pastor or a priest. And it's just caused you to be closed minded to anything that has to do with Jesus. Some of you have experienced hypocrisy from those who call themselves followers of Jesus but act like the devil. And it's just jaded you, it's jaded your whole opinion about Christianity and everything that has to do with it. So, first, I I would like to speak to you if you feel like you're wrestling with decision paralysis. As a representative and leader of the movement, Jesus began. I apologize for anyone who has mistreated you in any way as a who you know represented themselves as a follower of Jesus. Jesus never intended that. He began a movement of love and grace and joy and faith. He never intended that his movement would, you know, have people experiencing Uh, Gossip and, you know, a pettiness and control and manipulation and abuse of any kind. And so I do apologize. But I do ask you, do not make a decision based upon some people who may not have represented Jesus in his movement well, because that does happen. I'm asking you to make a decision based upon credible evidence, the credible evidence of eyewitnesses. And over the next six weeks, we're going to look at six more signs that I think should give you a reason to believe Jesus is the Son of God. And I ask you, uh, if you do believe, to invite someone to come and hear this testimony, this this evidence I'm going to present. I I think it will be compelling to them. And don't do it in in an obnoxious way. Do it in a helpful way. You just want to help someone explore our faith in Jesus. And then I need to say a word to the city church folk who are here. And so if you're new to church or you're new to city church, just know that, that it's our honor to provide this service in our, our, our programs like Kid City and City Youth and the other programs we have all through the week. It's what we do to serve our community and our city, and we're glad to do so. Uh, and so it's our gift to you. But if you call City Church your church, which means you believe in Jesus and City Church is your church, I do ask you to give with purpose. Because when you give here, lives change here. And it is making a difference. It does allow us to do everything we do to help people believe and thrive in Jesus. And so my prayer is that God will bless you generously as you give generously. Now our prayer team is going to be available here in the front. We believe in the power of prayer. And so, prayer team, I'm going to ask you all, come on up. There may be some of you who would say, you know, pastor, I'm ready to believe. I'm in. Then just just whisper it as an expression of your faith. Just say, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe. Just let it express what you believe. And then follow his way of life. I think you're going to see it is the best life possible. So where's my prayer team members? Are y'all coming on down? Come on down. Next week, we're going to look at sign two. And it was one so compelling, it convinced a hardcore skeptic to believe in Jesus too. You're not going to want to miss it. God bless you. Go in peace.